Burlesque Stripped Down, episode number 54. Welcome back, friends and lovers. I am so glad that you decided to press play today. This is Velvet Eau Claire. As always, I am your guide to all of the secrets, sexy, saucy, and very often not so sexy or saucy secrets of us, the ladies, gents, and non-binary folk behind the tassels. We are still smack dab in the middle of the season O sex. This is my favorite season, right? Forget about winter. Forget about summer. I want the season O sex. A couple months ago, I decided that it was about time to really dive into some of these sexuality details that kind of surround us and that we deal with as burlesque performers, as cabaret performers, maybe even just enthusiasts, right? All of these sexuality issues that kind of permeate our industry, permeate us as human beings. And so I wanted to kind of take some time, um, take an indefinite amount of time of episodes to delve into some of these issues, to bring on burlesque performers who have something to say regarding sexuality in particular, and also also sex, um, sex ed and sexuality professionals and researchers and doctors, like we have a doctor today, so fancy, right, from around the country, around the world to really give us some new insights and how we can kind of apply these things to our lives, again, as human beings and as specifically burlesque performers and enthusiasts. So today I do have Dr. Liz Powell on. And Dr. Liz is just a phenomenal human being. <laughs> I am so lucky. I have so many amazing guests on this show. And I was super excited that Dr. Liz offered to come on the podcast. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about Dr. Liz in a second. Before I get into this, just as a quick reminder, if you are loving the show, if you are enjoying everything that we're putting out there, all of these episodes, the season of sex, and um, all the other work that we've been doing, and you'd like to see more of it, there are a couple ways that you can support the show. I do have a Patreon set up. So if you're familiar with Patreon, it is a way that you can support, um, financially support your favorite artists. Um, some of you as burlesque performers may have a Patreon yourself. If not, you probably should. It's a great way to get people that, you know, maybe aren't able to always come to your shows or um, or if you don't, you know, you don't perform that often, but you do other things like, for example, this podcast. It's a way for people to support you and to demonstrate, to show that they enjoy what you're putting out into the world and to do that with a little bit of finances to help you pay the bills a little bit. So we do have a, um, a Patreon set up for Burlesque Stripped Down that helps us at this point. We're getting um, we're getting some more donations, some more patrons that are signing up to help us pay for the hosting for this podcast, both the media files and the website itself. And as we get a little bit more, if we get some more patrons, we will um, be adding in different things. I'm, I'm looking to do a whole uh, resource library for burlesque performers and to have more of a community and this and that. I have I have lots of plans. <laughs> so if you'd like to help out with that and join um, the Patreon community over there on burlesquestripdown.com slash support, that's going to give you the direct link to the Patreon page. There are plenty of patron-only photos that are going up over there. Those are exclusive and uncensored photos that I've been putting up from some of my photo shoots. So those are only for my patrons. And you have a direct line to, you have a direct line to me that way. And you can sign up and you can donate for as little as a dollar a month if you'd like to. So I would love it if you did that. If you'd like to donate some time, I would love to have more people um, on board on the BSD Posse. That's our burlesque stripped down posse. We are putting together some people that are committed and excited about making burlesque stripped down even bigger than it already is. Like I said, not only the podcast, but the community. 
and the resources and all of these things. So if you'd like to donate some time, um, either as an ambassador to simply share the posts out there or as more of a full-fledged team member to help with some of the admin things. And uh, particularly, I'd, I'd love any audio editors that want to either help out or, you know, or at least listen and give me some advice. Because as, as you know, if you listen, audio editing is not my favorite part. <laughs> of producing a podcast. So if you're interested in that, you can go to burlesquestripdown.com slash join the posse, P-O-S-S-E. Join the posse and that'll take you to a little forum if you'd like to. Uh, you can also, of course, send me an email and I can send you that link as well, velvet at burlesquestripdown.com. And of course, if neither of those really uh, resonates with you right now, that is totally understandable. You can also do a couple things as easy as simply sharing this episode with someone that you know would love it and or leaving a review in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. But really, iTunes is the Mac daddy of podcasts at this point. So any reviews and ratings that we get over there do help us to kind of get in front of more people. They help us in the search search algorithms. So that would be immensely appreciated. So let me go ahead and tell you a little bit about Dr. Liz herself before we jump into that interview. Now, Dr. Liz believes that great sex can change the world. She is a sex educator, coach, and licensed psychologist in both California and Arizona who specializes in non-monogamous and non-traditional relationships. Dr. Liz has helped couples and singles become more confident in who they are and communicate more effectively with their partners. You can learn more about Dr. Liz and her work at sexpositivepsych.com. Now, Dr. Liz and I, we we have a fantastic interview um, coming at you. And I will say in the beginning, you know, we talk about a lot of different things. And we do talk a little bit about polyamory and solo polyamory because that's something that's kind of how I found Dr. Liz in the first place was through a podcast around that topic. So if that's something you're interested in, in you definitely want to listen. But even if that doesn't quite interest you, stick around because we do talk about some really interesting things all the way around like – like basically sexuality and and by association our art as burlesque performers as activism right and we and I kind of touched on this back in the sex down south recap when I talked about Sunny Megatron and um, and basically the whole theme of the sex down south uh, conference in general, which was about the politics of sexual desire, of sexuality, and and Sonny Megatron's uh, keynote speech about the personal being political and the political being personal and all of that. But Dr. Liz and I really – well, mostly Dr. Liz. I, I was just kind of absorbing all the amazingness, right, and soaking it all in, um, talking about how living our authentic lives and being our authentic, sexual, vibrant selves is a form of activism right in itself. And that's so that was amazing. Of course, that then brought us into talking about authenticity, which and then we continued on and talk. We just talked about a bunch of crazy things. So this is a fantastic conversation. It is one that I'm going to listen to again and again, and it's probably going to you know shoot right up to the top of my favorites. I don't know. I don't think I can ever pick favorites on this show. There's so many. You guys are so amazing. So let's go ahead. Without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Liz. Yeah, you heard right, my friends. I am super, super duper excited because we have Dr. Liz Powell on the episode today. How are you doing, Dr. Liz? I am really good. How are you? Good. Is it okay that I keep just calling you Dr. Liz? I Absolutely. feel like that. I don't know if that nickname has or that name has really stuck, but like I love it. I think it's the best. Well, so Reed Mahalko is the one who started by giving me that name, and he said, "You better be careful. This is going to stick." And I was like, "Great, <laughs> let's do it." 
<laughs> it's so good. It's so much. I mean, I, I mean, you have a great last name too, and you know, even Liz. I mean, hey, it's my middle name too. You know, it's all that good stuff. But Doctor Liz, it just rolls off the tongue. And plus, you know, then everybody knows that they really got to listen to you, right? Well, you know, I got my doctorate largely because I have just enough narcissism that having people call me Doctor feels really great. So (laughs) might as well take full advantage. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. Now, for those of you, I mean, I gave a little bit of this in the intro already, but for those of you who don't know, I'm launching into this because I am actually really, really excited because I am not going to lie. I totally have a little friend crush on Dr. Liz. And it's one of those things I was saying before we actually started recording that one of the funny things about podcasting is that you feel like you know the people whose podcasts you listen to over and over. And so Dr. Liz is one of the um, currently one of the regular uh, hosts, I guess, or, or panel. I don't know if you guys call it a panel. I don't know what you call it. Um, one of the regular people on uh, Life on the Swing Set, which is a great, funny podcast that goes about, you know, goes into a lot of different things, all surrounding, you know, swinging and polyamory and just dating in general and sex in general. And so, Dr. Liz has come on there, and she is just amazing. And so, I listen to that so much that, like I said, I feel like I already know you a little bit. <laughs> and- <laughs> And I have to remember that, nope, actually, in fact, she does not know who I am, (laughs) even though I think we're best friends. (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, I'm so happy to be on the swing set now. um, And we are calling it official co-host. Co-host, got it. Okay. And uh, I'm so happy that Dylan and Cooper asked me to join the crew and that we now have Mike and Lola on there too. Yes, yes. Um, They're all people who I am. Well, I'm not friends with Mike in like real life, real life yet because I haven't met him in person. But Dylan and Cooper and Lola are some of my favorite people. So for me, it's like getting to hang out with my buddies and talk about sex, which what isn't better than that? Like how, how could you have a better time than chatting about sex with your buds? It's so true. It's so true. And and I have to say, um, I've been listening for a while now. And um, there was a, a previous co-host named Ginger, who is amazing, by the way. I really, yeah. really, I, you know, like as far as listening, I don't know any of these people in person. But um, but I have to say that I love that you are providing this new perspective on this, um, especially coming from a solo poly perspective. You know, uh, solo. And, and in case, because this is not a sexuality um, necessarily podcast, this is not, we don't really talk too much about polyamory. So for those of you who don't know, um, polyamory. Polyamory is just basically, you know, dating or having either romantic or sexual relationships or both with multiple people. And um, solo poly is something I can probably let you describe a little bit. Sure. But I-, I was so glad to have that perspective on there because l- recently that's how I've been identifying as well. It's not always where I've been in my journey, but recently that has been. And I was just it was just so refreshing to hear that perspective. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about what you bring, like what that solo poly perspective is? I would love to. Uh, so for me, the definition that I use for polyamory is the practice of having multiple loving relationships with the full knowledge and consent of all parties involved. Oh, it gives me chills. I love it. It's perfect. (laughs) Right. And I think that's a definition that I've stolen largely from like Franklin Vo and Eve Rickert. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was also on a like a poly list serve for a while for people who are poly leaders. Uh, And that's the definition that most of us came to. So solo poly is the practice of polyamory in a way in which you do not yourself intend to be part of a couple. So you don't tend to follow the relationship escalator. So for those who are are sitting there being like, what the heck does that even mean? <laughs> Everyone has heard the nursery rhyme, 
first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage. That's the relationship escalator. It's the path that we are all told all of our relationships must follow. Otherwise, they are not good relationships or they're worthless or you have to break up with the person and never talk to them again. uh, And they can never date your friends. Mm -hmm. And it comes with all of these expectations that we tie into our fairy tales and our popular culture and the way that we interact with people who are having relationships. We're always asking our friends, well, where is this going? You know, what are you going to be doing with this person as if there is an implied directionality? So with solo poly, you step off of that escalator and instead look at with each individual person that you date, what is it that you want from that relationship? Do you want to cohabit with anyone? Do you want to share finances with someone? Do you want to get legally married? Do you want to bear children? Do you want to do none of those things with anyone ever? It decouples, which fantastic word in multiple senses here, <laughs> the the trappings of commitment from the actual practice of commitment. That commitment can be so much more than just we share finances, that commitment is about the decisions that you make and the way that you live your life. So people who are solo poly can have very deep and intimate and committed relationships, but never really intend to live with someone or to share finances or to get married or to have children. They tend to practice as people who value their autonomy above all else. Mm -hmm. So for me as a solo poly person, I practice my polyamory in a way that gives everyone involved in every relationship that I'm a part of the most freedom possible. I'm always looking for ways to empower my partners to have more choice and more freedom because that's what I want them to do for me. It is when I am the most free that I feel the most loved. Mm. I love that. That's so amazing. And like I said, it's just been it's been so resonant uh, for me personally as of late and everything like that. And it's just it's such a it's a perspective that's just so needed, um, particularly in the poly community, but also outside of the poly community, I think, as well, because people see or hear about and, and and polyamory is something that's coming up more and more, you know, outside of this circle. You know, people kind of know what it is, even if they're not involved in the community, even if they're more, you know, quote, vanilla or whatever. Right. People are right. starting to, to understand that a little bit more. But I feel that solo poly is still just a weird thing. People just are like, well, yeah, you're just single. Right. Right. Or you don't you don't have serious relationships because that's what it is. Or you don't want to have a serious relationship or you don't want to love people. You just want to have casual sex. Right. Or you never want to have sex. There are all of these misconceptions about what solo poly means. And I get it. It's not common. Right. When I tell people that I'm solo poly, I don't expect them to immediately know what I mean. What I do expect is for people to ask questions about what that means, Mm -hmm. particularly if you're interested in dating me. If I use a term that you don't understand to describe myself, the best thing you can do is ask me, okay, what does that mean for you? Yeah. And what does that mean in terms of what we're building? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important to to get that clarification. Like you said, especially if you're someone that wants to build something. And I think in general, that's just a good practice to be in, that if people are using terms about their own self-identity that you don't understand... First, Google, because Google is your friend. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, like, come to them with your well-thought-out questions about how that affects your relationship with them or how that affects their world. Um, Like, do the 101 stuff yourself, but then come to them with an opportunity to give their voice, if they want to, to what that looks like for them. Right, right. Because there are so many words, even just polyamory, even just that word, for example, that does mean, yes, it has kind of a generally accepted definition, but it really does mean different things to different people based on, you know, what they do. I mean, even, you know, to to kind of bring this back to a lot of the listeners here, I mean, even a word like burlesque, 
mm-hmm. has very different meanings for a lot of different people. And the way I perform burlesque might be very different from the way, you know, for example, I mean, to use a, a big example, you know, Dita Von Tees. My version of burlesque is very different from Dita's version of burlesque. You know, right. they're they're both kind of under that umbrella. But what it means to me, I mean, granted, I haven't spoken with her. I don't know exactly what it means to her besides what she said in some interviews. But it's different. And it's important to take everyone's uh, kind of experience individually. Absolutely. Well, it's fantastic. Like I said, I'm just I'm just thrilled to have that kind of perspective because, I mean, though, you know, Life on the Swing Set, I mean, you know, it has that swing in the title. So it's kind of, you know, it has been at some points more focused on that. I just I think um, there were a couple times when I was like, ah, oh, it's feeling a little couple centric. It's feeling a little, you know, yeah. all of that. And so having that, I remember specifically there was one about um, I think there was an episode and, and, and they did a great job. I'm not criticizing at all, but it was just, you know, it was a topic about, um, you know, involving a third in relationships. Relationships and but they came from the perspective of the of the couples, right? Which is understandable because that's where their experience lies. That's, so and that's also where our culture yes, starts talking yes, about those absolutely. things. Absolutely, even the majority of mass media that talks or, or mainstream media that talks about polyamory talks about couples doing polyamory mm-hmm. rather than people doing polyamory. Yes. It's generally white cis folk uh, where the man is straight and the woman is bisexual. And that's that's the couple that they focus on and they talk about how it's just like everybody else except more people. <laughs> and and it's this very like cis, straight, white, upper middle class version of how to have non-monogamous relationships. And I think that, you know, now that I've kind of dipped a toe in the swinger world by getting in with the swing set people, <laughs> yeah. um, I was never a swinger before. I was always... I experimented with non-monogamy in like high school and then came to non-monogamy full time after my divorce. And so I've never been in a non-poly world, at least a little bit. And so stepping into a swinger mindset was very interesting for me because I come from such a different grounding. Um, My journey to polyamory was one of autonomy and independence. And so seeing this very interestingly couple-centric approach to things made me have to think about how I place myself in that culture, how I interact with people from that culture, and how I can validate the choices that they're making while pointing out if there are some ways in which that culture can be problematic, particularly to often single women or people who are less empowered in the way that they're interacting. Mm, that's beautiful. I, it's so important to have people um, that come to it from different uh, backgrounds, from different experiences and things, and to have people like you be vocal in those situations. That's that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, like, so an interesting experience I had, I went to the Desire Takeover with the Swing Set this year, mm-hmm. and uh, I went with a friend of mine who we had not previously had sex, not for lack of desire, but we just hadn't. Um, cause we live in different States and we only saw each other at conferences and at conferences, dance cards get very full, very quickly, <laughs> but we agreed to go to desire together and everyone was baffled by what our situation was and why we weren't arriving on a flight together and <laughs> why they didn't need to ask his permission to play with me and mm-hmm. why they didn't need to thank him after kissing me. And it was just this really fascinating glimpse into how different that mindset is. And, and recognizing that every every subculture, right, has its benefits mm-hmm. and also has its blind spots and feeling like who I am and how I interact in sexual and dating and romantic spheres in a lot of ways 
is the flip side in the non-monogamy world of how swingers operate. So, okay, so we jumped kind of into this polyamory thing, which is basically what I would sit here and talk about with you for probably all, you know, an entire hour, two hours, <laughs> if, if possible. But I acknowledge that maybe some of the listeners to this are not, don't, you know, don't necessarily identify in the polyamory thing. So let's let's back up a little bit. I would love to hear, I mean, we got a little bit of your bio. We know kind of like the general of who you are. But let's hear who who Dr. Liz like really is. What, you know, what are, what lights you up? What how would you kind of fill in the gaps from your bio to give us a sense of who you are as a human being? So the the big line that I've been hanging on lately and, and that I'm thinking is going to become one of my catchphrases is great sex can change the world. I believe very strongly that the sex that we have, the pleasure that we seek, and the ways in which we express ourselves authentically and beautifully through the sex that we have and the relationships that we have is one of the most powerful forces in our world. The sex that you have is activism. The the ways that you choose to express your wonderfully unique set of characteristics in the sex that you have with other people, that is a way to bring more of that authenticity and passion and pleasure to the world. I think that when we look at how most people talk about doing activism, it is things that come at personal cost, which is real. In order to create change, right, people are going to have to pay something in, whether that's time, whether that's people volunteering to get arrested at certain demonstrations, whether that's people who are making phone calls every day or people who are chaining themselves to trees, whatever it is. To some degree, all activism, all change comes with a cost because systems don't want to change. However, I think that when we focus on those ascetic aspects and the ways in which we are willing to sacrifice, we lose focus of the ways that we must care for ourselves and feed ourselves in order to continue making those sacrifices. No one is a good activist if they feel empty. You have to find the ways to fill yourself up so that you can continue that fight. And I know that for me, having a healthy, ridiculous, kinky, crazy-ass sex life helps fill me up and feel so much more ready to take on the ridiculous fascism of the world around us. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before um, or in that in that way, I guess. You know, I've always been a big advocate of, yeah, self-care and taking care of yourself and, and kind of filling up those buckets, you know. Uh, but you're right. I mean, that is a form, you know, that is a necessary prerequisite, I guess, for activism. Or it, So would you say, yeah, would you say that's kind of like a necessary prerequisite for activism or do you think that that is activism in itself? I think it's both. I think that... In order to be a healthy activist, we have to fill ourselves up. Like, you have to take care of yourself. You are no good to anyone if you burn yourself out to the point where you can't get out of bed, right? What we are doing is a marathon and not a sprint. And at the same time, like, having your queer, ridiculous sex is activism. Having sex for pleasure because you want to, that is activism. Having amazing, empowered hard-ass fucking orgasms as a woman when there's a government that wants to punish you for having a body and daring to use it, that is activism. And, and the ways that we claim ourselves in this space and in this world, especially as a woman for me, that is trying to tell us that our bodies are wrong, that we are wrong, that any way we differ from men is a problem, 
claiming that fully and embodying that fully, that is activism. Because I am saying to the world that there is nothing wrong with my body. My body is a miracle and it can do amazing things. Yes, yes. And I think, I hope that a lot of people listening, a lot of the burlesque performers listening uh, really resonate with that as well, because that is something that I think most of us um, try to do on stage, not just in our personal you know, bedroom sex lives, but um, particularly females and female identifying um, performers, a lot of us try to you know, bring out that activism on stage, even if it's a ridiculous piece that has nothing to do with, you know, quote, activism, just simply by being on stage and presenting that is a form of activism in itself. Yeah. You know, I, I take um, pole dancing classes. And yes. <laughs> part of what I love about doing pole and lap and floor work is that it's a space where my sexuality is fully mine and on display in a way that has been so traditionally coded for the male gaze but that I'm claiming for me. I am saying, I am showing you this body because I fucking love it. Yes. And if you enjoy it, great, but I'm not here for you. Yes, yes. We've had a lot of discussions um, both on this podcast and off off, off the air um, about, like, for example, the difference between burlesque and stripping, right? Yeah. And a huge thing that comes up again, as I've said many times, neither one is bad. I am fully supportive of either one. But... The, I think the difference is in that power dynamic a little bit, right? You know, the the, the stripping in a st- traditional strip club is very much about that ma- usually male, not always male, but that gaze of the customer and the the money that they're giving you. Whereas typically in a burlesque show, it's much more about, look, this is what I'm doing. But that said, in either case, it's as long as I have, I as the stripper or burlesque performer, have the the ability to make that decision truly on my own, not be coerced, not uh, have to for financial finances or anything like that. That's, that's that power. Right. And I, and I think that that's, that's what each of us can do with our sex is that the sex that we choose to have can be that same kind of power where we say like, this is my body and I'm going to get every juicy bit out of it. And there is no law that you can make that is going to stop me from doing that. Yes. Oof. Oh, I love it. I love it. Now, are you, I mean, we don't want to go too far into politics, but um, how do I put this? <laughs> are you concerned with, I mean, obviously we're all concerned. I think most of us, I don't right. want to say all, but we're, I mean, we're all concerned. Do you think that those of us who do practice our or live our lives in uh, this more outward fashion um, are going to have some legitimate <sighs> concerns? Uh, yeah. I mean, so... I'm a part of a group of women who talk about sex on the internet. Mm-hmm. And in the last six to eight months, two of the members of that group have been personally targeted by Milo Yiannopoulos. Oh my God. And so, so yeah, I think it's coming. I am making a choice as a relatively financially stable, mostly cis white woman to keep taking these risks because I have enough privilege particularly as a disabled veteran, which is a class that most people don't want to fuck with, Mm -hmm. that I can take these chances and feel like I have enough chips that I can hopefully prevent something truly terrible from happening. But who knows? I mean, I don't... I, I feel like when you are a woman who chooses to buck the patriarchy... The longer and louder that you get, the higher your probability is of eventually hitting some pushback from that. And pushback here means 
you know, days or months of people being horrifically vitriolic towards you on the internet, possibly doxing you, possibly making threats towards you and your family. And I think that unfortunately right now, that is one of the, that's one of the costs of entry to being a person who is doing this work. And it's, it's scary and it's, it's a lot to cope with. And I'm not going to let those fuckers keep me down. (laughs) I would rather take that risk and then end up having to figure out what to do if shit went down than not do the work that is important to me and not talk to people about the things that are important to me because I'm worried that I won't be safe. If there's anything that I've learned over the years, it's that most safety we have is an illusion. You can be safer. You can do some things to help ensure that you're doing the best you can, but no one is ever truly safe. And if you're sacrificing safety for freedom, you'll get neither. That's so true. Absolutely. Speaking of safety, though, I'm I'm sure there are some things. Do you know of any things? uh, Do you have anything off the top of your head? Like, what can we do if we do want to still be vocal and active and all of these things, you know, whether we're performing or educating or whatever? Are there anything, anything that you can think of off the top of your head that we can do to kind of like either safeguard us or protect ourselves a little bit? Yeah, well, so the swing set did a really great episode that I still have not fully processed on how to protect yourself on the, the internet. Uh, we brought on Chris Pent, who is a wonderful friend of mine, and he and Dylan and some of Cooper talked to the rest of us for most of an hour <laughs> in terms that I'm still trying to figure out fully. But they put together a bunch of links that you can access to help lock down all of your information as much as possible. They highly recommended using either Signal or WhatsApp uh, as secure communication methods. Um they go over different. They went over different ways to, you know, lock down your stuff on the net as much as possible. I think that the the best thing most of us can do is make sure that we are making a risk aware decision. So think about realistically what are the risks inherent here? How severe would those consequences be? How likely are each of those scenarios? And then make the best decision you can for you at that time. And this is the same as coming out. So like if you're a 14 year old who is dependent on your parents for survival and coming out means that they would probably kick you out of the house, maybe that's not the best time for you to come out. Right, right. Right. Wait until you have your your ducks in a row a little bit more. If you are someone who is in the middle of a custody battle and information about you talking about sex on the Internet would get in front of a judge that is likely to be bigoted against people who talk about sex, this may not be the time for you to do that. And I see this in both directions, where there are people who are uh, making decisions where they aren't considering the risks and the full weight of those risks. But more often, I see people looking at the potential risks and being so afraid of the very worst case scenario that they don't ever do it. So in particular, like for coming out about non-monogamy, there are a lot of folks who are not out about being non-monogamous And their fear is that they could lose their job or their family might not talk to them again. And most of those people are cis white folk that are relatively well off financially. And I don't know that it would actually be as big of a detriment to them as they are choosing, right? So you have to take some time and think about in this risk assessment that I'm doing, where are my edges? 
where is my zone of activism? Where is my zone of comfort? Because you can't be in your zone of activism 100% of the time. But if you're always comfortable, there's probably more that you could be doing. Mm. Very true. Very true. And that actually brings, uh, that's funny that you mentioned that because there was something, I, I can't remember if it was, um, it might have been Michael Hyatt that I was listening to, or I, I forget exactly where I saw um, this particular quote or whatever, but it was, he was talking about like the comfort zone, right? And that, that phrase has kind of been used, you know, a lot. We all know what that, what that means, the comfort zone. But then he also mentioned the discomfort zone, but then he took it one step further and said also the delusion zone. Right. So separating it out like that, because we often think of either just either comfort or discomfort. But then in that case, discomfort could mean all sorts of different things. Right. And he was talking about all of this in a, in a business sense. But we could think of it as, you know, th- that comfort zone that we are in doing, you know, what just feels OK for us versus pushing ourselves just a little bit. We don't want to go all the way into the delusion zone and not realize what these risks are and just say, fuck it to the world and just I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to be a burlesque performer every day out on the street. I mean, that's delusion <laughs> like that. Don't do that. But there's kind of those different levels of it. And I, and I, I just like that. That's what it reminded me of when you mentioned that. Yeah, I think that there are definitely different levels. And I think that. You know, if I was going to start running today, I wouldn't say, I'm going to start running today and next month I'm doing a marathon. That would be silly. (laughs) Like, there are a handful of people on this planet who can wake up one morning and be like, you know, I'm going to do a marathon next week. Everything will be cool. Same thing with activism. If you haven't been doing a lot to take care of yourself and you jump right in with going to every single march, right, making every single call, sending every single letter, trying to fight for every single thing, you're going to burn yourself out super quick. And if you look at all the things happening and you're like, oh, I would feel uncomfortable making a phone call. So you don't do anything. Again, your comfort zone is getting in the way of your ability to actually do something. And just, you know, kind of bringing it back to what you were saying as far as coming out and things. And that's something we've actually had a lot of discussions about um, in the kind of burlesque and cabaret world as well, because it's, you know, there's for some reason there tends to be a lot of people who are teachers <laughs> that also do burlesque. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that's just the thing. And that's a rough one. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and that idea of like whether, you know, I, I had I heard from one girl who was um, and she was out in the UK, but she said her 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 principal and everybody or headmaster, whatever they call it, um, was super supportive and wonderful and it was not a problem. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. But that's not always the case. So whatever aspect you're in, you know, we've dealt with that a lot in the burlesque world as well. It's like, how out can you be? Some people keep their, you know, their Facebooks completely separate between their performer name and their real life name, you know, and that's a decision that each person has to make individually. Yeah. And it's really challenging. You know, for me, when I was in the army, I had to be a bit more circumspect about who knew that I'm polyamorous and kinky and was working with poly kinky queer folk. I started my private practice initially while I was still in the army and I felt comfortable putting up a website and a profile talking about seeing those populations because the position I had created for myself in the unit that I was a part of meant to me that the most likely thing that would happen if they found out and had a problem with it is they would call me into their office and be like, look, you need to quiet this down. So I felt as though the risk that I was taking was a reasonable risk. I was unlikely to bear any serious, severe, life-altering consequences because of it. And again, in the military, like I could have lost my job in a way that makes it harder for me to be hired ever again for coming out. And I think that 
it's it's a challenge to know what's going to happen until it happens. And everybody's situation is different. And I will never say that everyone should be out. But I think that a lot more people could be out than think that they could. I would agree with that in, in, in all the different forms, right? <laughs> Whether we're talking right. about, you know, sexuality or um, kinkiness or polyamory or burlesque even. You know, I think you're right. I think you you hit it on the head when you said that people tend to just go automatically to the worst case scenario. And sometimes that is the case. Sometimes that is probably, you know, the most likely scenario is the worst case. But oftentimes there might be, you know, something we have to look at things kind of realistically. And you had to look at, you know, in your situation, correct me if I'm wrong, but the worst case was getting fired. But the more likely case was getting just a kind of a, a slap on the wrist, a talking to and being told right. to cut back. Right. Right. The The most likely thing that would have happened was maybe a negative counseling statement, which is military jargon basically for formally writing you up. It was theoretically possible that I could have been given a discharge for other than honorable conditions, at which point, if I ever wanted to get a job again, that could have been problematic. Depending on how the licensing is in different states, it might have impacted my ability to be licensed as a psychologist. Like, a lot of stuff could have gone down. And it didn't. Well, we're all glad that it didn't. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, too, I was lis actually listening to that um, Swing Set episode recently. It's funny that you mentioned it. Um, and I'm having a hard time myself because I personally just internally feel like I don't give a fuck. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I should probably safeguard all these things. And I probably should separate out my, you know, my Velvet Eau Claire from my, you know, real muggle name and all these things. and all. But I don't know. I'm having a hard time caring. I know I need to care a little bit. <laughs> And like put my make sure that I'm safe. But because I do mostly work for myself, I do work for other people. I have clients occasionally. But if those went away, I really wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I don't have children. So there's no custody battles. My family, my close family anyway, the ones I care about, they already know. You know, so for me, I've tried to look at the possible implications or the possible consequences. And I'm just I'm like, mm, I don't really know if that's a big deal to me. <laughs> yeah. And I and I I see both sides. I see the side of wanting to do everything you can to protect yourself. Right. Because, you know, you might as well do what you can. And the reality of large cultural change is that the people on the front lines get hurt. Yeah. The reason we can have interracial marriage is because Loving versus Virginia. And that was years and oh. years of suffering and oh. hardship. Yes. Yeah. I am deciding to be someone on that front line, and that means that I am willing to take that risk for me. Mm -hmm. I can't choose for anyone else to take that risk. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the more of us that do, the easier that is. Because if it's only one or two people, that's really easy to shut up and shut down. If it's hundreds of people or thousands of people, it is much harder to do the same kind of kinds of tactics. Yes. And so when you when you're looking for cultural change, Part of it is you have to have enough people willing to be on that front line and willing to take that risk, knowing that some of those folks are going to have things that happen to them that are terrible and that are not okay. And that in the end, we'll all look back on and feel terrible about. And that's unfortunately, from what we see in history, the only way forward. Now, as someone on the front line, I know this is similar to the question I asked earlier, but not just talking about you know, things like cybersecurity and passwords and things, but are there what, – what do you personally do to kind of prevent any of that kind of front line injury <laughs> to yourself? Is there – are you completely 100 percent out to every single person that you meet, for example, or oh, anything yeah. along those lines? Yeah. So I'm, I'm out to everyone and I – you know, my <laughs> – 
my podcast is under my, all the podcasts that I'm on are under my real name. My website has my real name. Uh, every conference that I present at is at under my real name. So everyone knows what I do. Um, my parents know what I do. My mom isn't a huge fan, but that's, you know, that's family. <laughs> yeah, mothers um, usually aren't, whatever. <laughs> mothers usually aren't. That's okay. You know, she gets to have her opinions as long sure. as she doesn't tell me what to do. She can do however she wants. So I'm I'm 100% out to everybody. Uh, I try to live my life in as transparent, as authentic a way as possible so that I don't have to worry about people having dirt on me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have also structured my life in such a way that I don't, I don't need to rely on someone else telling me whether I have a job or not. Yes. So yes. I work for myself. You know, I helped, um, I have my private practice here where I see therapy and coaching clients so that even if my license got revoked, I could turn more towards coaching and, and make my money that way. I helped found a sex radical wellness collective here in San Francisco. So I've got really good community of healers around me that we can all refer to each other from. I've put myself in San Francisco, which is the haven of queerdos and misfits. And, you know, I, I've made the choices that I need to make to put myself in as good a position as possible to be able to be out there uh, in a way that feels as safe as being out there can feel. You know, one of the words that I mean, you mentioned really sticks out to me and anybody who's listening or who has listened to this podcast for a while probably knows which one that is. And that is about authenticity, right? About being authentic. Um, I also like that you said transparent as well. Those are two great words because I think that that has a multitude of different um, benefits to life. I mean, not only to be able to, um, you know, to feel feel more authentic and feel better, but it attracts the right kind of people to you as well. And I think that almost is a safeguard in itself. Even if you're putting more different things out there, by doing so authentically, I think it kind of helps to protect you in a way. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, even in my in my classes about like dirty talk and dating, I tell people all the time, be who you authentically are. If you aren't a smooth talker, Rico Suave type of person, don't pretend to be in order to get someone because they're going to find out who you are eventually. And if you're trying to build a relationship as someone that you're not, you're not actually building a relationship. Yes. Oh my gosh. I have to say too, there was one episode, I think it, I want to say what it was one of the um, gangbang the mailbags <laughs> um, uh. on the swing set, which are just so much fun. And I actually wrote it down on my phone. I like literally took the time to like type myself a little memo. Um, and you mentioned about playing the dating long game. Right. Yeah. And you were talking about and and the quote was, I I believe I get it right. Pardon me if it's paraphrasing. But you said until you're the type of person that people want to have around, you're not going to get the dates. Right. And yeah. And it seems so simple, but it really just like stuck out to me, not just in a dating sense, but even, you know, we could talk about that. We could, you know, correlate that even with burlesque, like until you're the type of person that people want to be, you're not going to book the shows. If you You know, mess backstage, if you're shitty to other performers, nobody wants to work with you. Yeah. You need to know your shit. You need to be fun to be around. You need to be open to helping out. That's when people want to hire you. Exactly. And it doesn't always mean you have to be a super crazy extrovert. Like, that's not what we're saying, I don't think. But, like, just be the kind of person that people actually enjoy having around. And, again, being you. Because if you're pretending to be someone else, it's going to be exhausting to you. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're creating a gulf between yourself and the other people. When you pretend, you are actually distancing yourself from people. Even if the goal is to get their approval or to make them like you, you're not making them like you. You're making them like an illusion. Yes. Oh, yes. So much. 
so much. It's interesting too, though, because you know we've um, I've talked on the show, and, and one of my big things is also about the imposter syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. About kind of feeling like you know who am I to be doing this? They're going to find me out eventually. So there's like an it's it's weird to find this balance because there's an element of things like kind of faking it till you make it. But then there's also this element of authenticity. Can you touch on that a little bit? Like, where do you think that balance lies between those two thoughts? Or, or are they conflicting at all? Oh, no, I think so. Here's here's the, the background research on imposter syndrome. Oh, good. I, imposter- I love having a doctor on the show. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> so imposter syndrome tends to affect women far more than men. And actually, what we see is that in general... Men, when they evaluate their own skill and abilities, overestimate what they are able to do, whereas women tend to estimate fairly accurately what they are capable of. However, because the way that our culture works is it says that anything that women and men do differently means women are wrong, women are constantly told they have to be more confident, they have to give themselves more credit, they have to reach bigger. So anytime that they feel like they aren't being that overconfident, super big person, they feel like they must not actually be as good as people think that they are. When what's happening is we're in a mismatched culture for the way that we evaluate. When people come to me now and ask me if I can do certain kinds of work, like I got asked to do uh, an interview for a piece on uh, a website, and they wanted me to talk about, uh, like they gave me a few different topic choices, and one of them was how to make sex last longer. And I looked at that topic and I was like, I could talk about that, but that's not really something I'm passionate about. I don't think it's necessarily the right answer the vast majority of the time. And like, I'm not going to feel authentic doing that. If that had been the only interview topic that they'd offered me and I'd sent them answers, I would have felt like a fraud because in some ways I was kind of acting like a fraud. And, and so I think that there are these two elements where women tend to be much more realistic in estimating their abilities and skills They are faced with a world that tells them that if they're not super confident all the time, it's because there's something wrong with them. And I think that in general, as humans learn a new skill, we look to experts for comparison rather than to people who are beginners for for comparison. Absolutely. So for instance, we're recording this on February 1st. On this past Friday, I launched my online school and I had never done an online school before. So it was completely new to me. And the day that I spent recording all of my videos for my static online course, I felt like the biggest imposter you have ever fucking known, even though all I was doing was recording myself going through the material I do for my live class. (laughs) And it's a class that I get great reviews on, that everybody loves, that I get tons of amazing feedback about, but not seeing people reacting to me, not feeling their reactions to me, going through that same material in a different setting and in a different way, made me feel like I had no idea what I was doing again. And it's because it was a learning curve. It's because I I don't know what I'm doing when it comes to online classes. I know a lot more now than I did a week ago. <laughs> but when you're learning something new, you're going to feel bad at it because you are still learning. And that's normal. And so I think that when people talk about imposter syndrome, it's usually a combination of something they are new to, so they are still on a learning curve, something that they have either a mismatch in terms of their authenticity for or that they've gotten feedback that they're not confident enough about because their culture matches wrong. Or it's something where they know exactly where they're at, but because they aren't fitting that culture, they feel like they should be more confident. 
Mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that in um, in in a lot of a lot of the cases. Definitely, I've definitely I've I've read about because um, I've done a bit of research, not necessarily academic research, but you know, kind of articles and interviews and things on on it. And I I have heard of a lot of people who are still you know they're not beginners necessarily. So I think they would probably fall into like one of the latter categories, including some men. You know, I mean, obviously some men feel it as well. I, I want to say it was somebody like Tom Hanks, I think, who said he was still feeling like an imposter even after you know you know decades of whatever. Yeah. And I think that, you know, to some degree, no one ever feels anything all the time. Right. Like if I told you that starting tomorrow, you are going to feel happy forever. That's, it doesn't make any sense, right? No, like no. even happy, which is an emotion we tend to consider to be positive, would be exhausting all the time. And so your confidence is going to wax and wane. And I think that less so than finding ways to never feel imposter syndrome, it's more important to find what it is that pulls you out of it. So for me, I know those tools are, I get external feedback from people who I trust, who I know will be honest and kind. I walk away for a bit until I can come back and let the emotions fizzle a bit. Because when you're in the middle of a strong emotional reaction, it's really hard to think anything other than what those emotions want you to think. So I take a break, do something else, try to like laugh or walk or get some sun something else so that I can break that cycle Mm -hmm. and then like giving it a breath and coming back is what tends to help me a lot. Absolutely. I know for me, one of the biggest things was simply discovering, like I said, doing kind of that research for me, but also just talking to people, knowing I wasn't alone was the biggest thing with, um, particularly with the imposter syndrome, but with a lot of these different mindset issues is, you know, we tend to, we don't really talk about them in our culture. So we feel like we're all by ourselves. Like I'm the only one who feels this way. And the instant that we are all more vulnerable and we all, I mean, I could quote a whole bunch of Brene Brown here, but you know, I love Brene Brown. I was just going to bring up Brene Brown. She's so good. She's amazing. I just like and I love her kind of like like little bit of cynicism that she has in there like too. I just oh I love it. Um you know but yeah that that kind of identifying, you know, empathy is is just that oh it's just so important, you know, shame cannot survive empathy as she says and it's just you know once we can connect with other people and realize that we're not alone in this. Well, and shame wants to keep us silent, right? Shame thrives on silence. So the more that you talk about what you're experiencing, the more that you share it with others, the easier it is to overcome it. Mhm. Absolutely. I know another thing I've heard a lot of people do, too, and this is kind of more of a like a practical thing, um, which doesn't always work for everybody. For me, it doesn't always doesn't. It, sometimes it works a little bit, but they have actually like a little compliment like jar or a compliment folder in their email, right? So anytime they get any compliments, they will put it in that place or in a scrapbook or wherever it is. And then when they're feeling those moments, they have it, all of those positive things kind of in one place that they can kind of go back to. And, and you know, it, sometimes it helps to ground them a little bit and keep them sure. in that positive place. So, well, very cool. I'm really glad we get to talk about that. I mean, like I said, everybody listening knows that I freaking love talking about authenticity. I think that is just like one of the most important. <laughs> Important things um, as human beings and and as burlesque performers as well, because we t- you know anytime you're in a performance based industry, even as an educator, even as you know a, an actress or a singer or a you know musician or whatever it is. There tends to be, you know, we all want to book things. So we kind of put this face outwards, right, especially in the days now here of social media. And so I think it's really important that we, we can still present that outwards. You know, I still put my edited pictures on my Instagram. Yeah, OK, it happens. But also, you know, to have that kind of realizing that we're all the same and we all, you know, struggle with the same things. And again, just to 
one more time emphasize one thing that you said, which is, you know, not comparing your beginning to somebody else's middle or end. Yeah. And, and like you said, with social media, it's super important in the age of social media to not compare your internal life to people's Facebook lives. Because, you know, on Facebook, everyone is like in the happiest relationship of their life and their jobs are amazing and they are beautiful and happy and eating perfectly. And they and do all the Pinterest everyone, things. Yeah. <laughs> all the Pinterest things. They're keeping every New Year's resolution. They're going to the gym nonstop and drinking their juice and their green smoothie and going vegan and paleo and all of the things. People go on Facebook for validation and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And what you're seeing is only a piece of what's real. So remember when you're comparing yourself to all of your Facebook friends that that's not reality. <laughs> We've all had that friend who all that they post on Facebook oh. is about all the things that are going <laughs> wrong for them. Yep. And that's exhausting. And so none of us want to be the exhausting person who only ever posts about everything going wrong on social media. And so it can feel as though there's this very delicate balance that none of us quite know of posting about your positive things and acknowledging that they're happening and then also posting about the ways in which you're struggling and that are hard for you right now. Yeah, it is. It's a hard balance to strike. You know, it's funny since um, Facebook has had, you know, it has the on this day, you know, your memories over the years. Um, and I've actually I've been on Facebook since 2000, late 2004, I think, almost 2005. Um, you know, So almost in the beginning. So I've got, you know, like 12 years of Facebook memories that they try to shove down my throat. And, you know, it's just funny to look back, uh, you know, back before everybody was on Facebook, like when I it was only like a group of like friends and things and I would just have yeah. the most like angsty I mean granted I was younger as well so there was that and very often intoxicated there's also that um Dude, you know I found a book of my high school poetry oh, and it good. was it was so bad oh, oh my, my god, god. Oh. I was so angsty oh I am so excited because actually in Orlando, they're doing something called the Orlando Cringe, which is a play because we have the Orlando Fringe Festival that we do a lot. But um, they're doing something called the Orlando Cringe. And apparently they've done it before, but I haven't heard it. But it's basically it's like people reading from their high school journals on stage. And I'm just I bought two tickets right away. I'm like, I'm gonna find somebody to go with me because this sounds amazing. It's the Valentine's Day edition and it's going to be absolutely like but like real like and raw that's all so i'm so real. excited i'm so oh, excited God. <laughs> talk about like stepping into your strength and courage reading right? your high school journal to people oh my god Ooh, i don't know if I could people do. are brave oh i know i kept a journal from like you know, I think seventh or eighth grade all the way through till I was about 21. Um, and so I and I still have almost all of them and I actually unpacked them fairly recently um, to put on my bookshelf. And I but I haven't been brave enough to even look inside of them, much less to read them in front of people. So. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, OK, so let's go ahead. And I would I'd love to talk. You mentioned self-care earlier um, or, or I mentioned it or somebody mentioned it. It came up. Do you have a particular favorite self-care practice that you like to do? So here's, here's the dirty little secret of most of us mental health folks. We are like excellent at teaching other people how to do self-care and tend to be the worst at it ourselves. So my self-care, okay, I've actually gotten into a better habit about this recently. What I will do every week is pick what my top three to five priorities are for that week of everything total. And then I give myself rewards for each of the things that I accomplish. Now, those goals that you make, are they personal or professional or a little bit of both? So it's a little bit of both. So for instance, like my top priorities this week were seeing my clients, uh, planning my next week, uh, 
doing my move because I just moved and then uh, preparing for and teaching my class in Albuquerque. So it's a mix of both. And then I pick rewards for myself for each of them. Uh, for instance, my reward might be a unicorn sticker in my planner, or it could be, I love unicorns. I am a unicorn. That's They're my amazing. people. Oh, unicorns are great. <laughs> uh, sometimes my big rewards will be like getting a super delicious ice cream sandwich from Baked Bear, which is a place here that does in-house ice cream and baked treats and their cookies are to die for. Or like going out to dinner or something. So I pick things that, that make me feel really good. And in some ways, limiting my priorities so severely is one of my biggest acts of self-care. Because the type of person that I am is I will try to do literally all the things and then get super burned out and do none of the things. Sounds familiar to me. Mm, yeah. Right. So by limiting myself, I'm much more likely to actually get things done. Uh, things that I'm looking forward to for self-care in my move, I just moved to a place where I have a bathtub with jacuzzi jets Ooh. and I am like, I am so ready to dive into that self-care and soak in it for hours and hours. Hell yeah, that sounds nice. Yeah, the jacuzzi jets, those, those are good. I've said before, I'm not a big fan of baths in general because I get really bored. I I mean, unless I'm doing something oh. fun in the bath, but, no, you know, aside baths. from that, like, love I don't it. know, I just have a rough time. But with jacuzzi jets, it's a little different. I can last a little longer. But um, yeah, see, and, and, it's, and that's what I love about self-care is that it's different for each individual person, right? So right. for me, uh, you know, a two-hour long, you know, bubble bath would not be my version of self-care. <laughs> Well, I, what you could do, and mm -hmm. this is what I may do, is you can get a little TV screen that operates on Wi-Fi okay, and then yeah. like watch movies in the bath or like like get, get a mount for your iPad so you can watch a movie. Yeah, I've thought of bathe. that. I've actually brought in my computer before and just like, you know, stream something on there. But I still like, I just, I find that I'm just not very comfortable usually huh. in bathtubs and I like, and I, and I'm just like, I don't know. It just doesn't really do it for me. Maybe I just need, maybe I need company in my bath. Like, I don't maybe. know. But <laughs> I mean, baths are, baths are better with two if your that's tub can true. accommodate it. Mm -hmm. That's true. But yeah, that's what I love about it is that, you know, just because something is like traditionally like self-care, like massages or um, right. baths or things like that doesn't work for everybody, you know? No. Uh, another thing that I do for self-care is I say no. My calendar, I am someone who if I don't watch myself, I will book myself completely solid uh, all the time. And that doesn't work out well for me. So now when people like there are people who I really like, who I want to spend time with. And they'll ask me, when can we get together? And what I've been telling a lot of people recently is, like, unless they're on the top part of my priority list for people who I allocate time to, most likely I'm going to see them in March. That's just the most likely time right now, because I'm gone for the next five days, and then I have to prepare after I get back from my trip. I had a trip scheduled at the end of the month that may or may not be happening, and I have to see my clients and get stuff done for my business. I'm starting a webinar this month. There's just a lot of things that are happening for me. And if I try to book in everybody who wants to see me, I end up with no time for myself. Yeah. It's, well, I'm glad you made room for us here. On yeah, Thursday. absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I fully understand that. I have a bit of that problem as well where I'm, I, I, like to, I like to do things for people. I like to see people and I like to help people with things and I like to do this and I like to do that. And yeah, it, it's, it's hard to say no. It's hard to whittle down and to, you know, not feel that guilt. Guilt is a big, uh, it's a big issue for me, for a lot of us, I think. Yeah. And what I've learned with practice is that my no is actually a good thing for me to give that person because 
what I tend to do is eventually I'm like showing up to these things where I'm showing up out of obligation, not because I really want to be there. Mm -hmm. Where if I say no more often, when I see those people, I'm like super excited to see them. Yeah, that's or a really good point. Or when I say yes to the thing, I'm saying yes to it because it's really important to me. And narrowing it down makes it so that each of them is a lot more juicy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good, that's a really, really good point. And it, it echoes um, some conversations that are being had about consent these days, right? You want to have like, you know, the enthusiastic consent. If someone says yes to something, whether it's sex or dinner or drinks or a meeting or whatever, if they say yes to it out of obligation, it's not nearly as enjoyable for all parties involved. <laughs> no. I'm glad that you mentioned that as part of your self-care because I think so often we focus on, again, the kind of traditional things and forget that just these daily choices that we make minute to minute can be part of our self-care as well. Yeah, absolutely. No is no is so wonderful. So many people get freaked out about no. And I tell people, like, no is essential in my life. I don't really trust someone that I'm dating or sleeping with until they give me a good no. Because until I know that you will tell me no when you need to, None of your yeses are as meaningful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, and as you know, if you look at it from the re from the receiving end of the no, I mean, in addition to what you just said, I remember at one point I was doing sales and my manager, my trainer was telling me, you know, just think of no as the acronym like for the next one next one. And from that kind of perspective, it's easier to take the no's as well, um, to think of it like just, well, now I have a chance to do something else or to ask something else or to find someone else or, you know, whatever whatever that situation calls for in that particular moment. Right. Like, do you want to spend time with someone who's simply there enduring their time with you? Not particularly, no. <laughs> no, I want someone who's like really fucking excited to be spending time with me. So if someone tells me no because they can't be really fucking excited, then I get to find someone who will be. Yay! That's much more fun. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of really fucking excited, I think we should go ahead and move on to my favorite two sections. Well, I don't know, because I love the conversation part that we have already. You know, that's always good, too. But these little last two sections are really, really fun for me. Um, the first one is called Pick Your Poison, and I do this with everybody. This is basically, you know, you and I have gotten into some really deep stuff, right? We've gotten it. We've talked about polyamory. We've talked about authenticity and activism and all this crazy, amazing stuff. But now it's time to go a little back to superficial again. And we just Yay! kind of want to get to know you just on a real superficial level. So I've got 11 different questions, but I only want you to um, answer one of them. So I want you to pick any number, 1 through 11, to determine what your question will be. We'll go with 7. Number 7. Oh, I, I love this one. I feel like you're going to have a good answer for it, too. Okay. So if you could spend 48 hours in the body of someone else, who would you choose and what would you do? Oh, my God. That's a really challenging question. Uh, no, I know. Superficial does not mean easy. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> wow. I think I'm going to go with the nostalgia factor right now and say I would be Barack Obama. Oh. Because, Barack. first I of all, he's just crazy smart, and I want to see what it's like inside that brain, and I want to have some really awesome sex with Michelle Obama. Oh, my God. She... And feel what that's like with a penis. Like, that would be the most amazing cluster of experiences this is my favorite answer ever you're so right yes oh she's a, she's a goddess she's amazing i just love right? her and i love him and they're just and i'm so sad no i'm, I'm with you i think that's great and you know that they are still crazy passionate for each other so they like sure i seem to be yeah i want to feel that yes yes See, I'm tempted in a much less fun way. I would be tempted to answer um, Donald Trump, not no. for any of those fun reasons, but just so I could fuck up everything in his administration, though. 
Oh, right? Yeah. Yeah, I could do ev- all the things in 48 hours. That's you you could fire but a that lot of people. I could fire a hours. lot of as we've as we've seen him do already in 48 hours apparently. Oh. But Okay, no politics. Ah, just let it go. Moving on. Moving on. Moving on. Okay. No, that's a fantastic answer. I love that you went there with it. Good. Now, the next section is called This or That. And this is kind of our quick fire round where I give you two different options. And you just say whichever one appeals to you the most. You can interpret these however you want. And yeah, we'll just kind of go through them. Two options. Pick whichever one you like better. Okay? Okay. Sweet. All right. We'll start with Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts. Starbucks. City or country? City. Movies or TV shows? Ooh. TV shows. They're so good lately, you know, the last decade or so. Well, and you can explore concepts in more depth. Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, a lot of burlesque performers, but I'll throw these out there. Dita Von Tease or Dirty Martini? Ooh, that's a tough question. Dirty Martini. We love them both, but she dirty. Oh, she's amazing. Now, how about a dirty martini or a pint of beer? Dirty martini. <laughs> Day or night? Oh, that's challenging. Uh, night. How about Harry Potter or Star Wars? Wow. That's tough. Well, okay. So are we? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> we I want to ask choose. clarifying questions, but that misses the point of the exercise. So... <laughs> We'll go Harry Potter. Go Harry Potter? All right, all right. And now I'm curious as to what the qualifying question was, or clarifying well, question okay. was. Well, okay, so so if we're looking at, like, all of the Star Wars, right? True. The way that they use women is not particularly great until the very recent films. True. Whereas, like, Harry Potter at least has one to three great women characters in every book, and they have a range of women characters, which is really appealing in and of itself, Okay. All right. No, I, I can respect that answer. I'm a huge Star Wars fan myself, but um, I can respect I love Star that. Wars. I can respect that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally get that. I mean, they've been doing great things the last two films. That's great. Um, but even the, I don't know, I even had issues with Rogue One. Have you seen Rogue One? I, yeah, I've seen Rogue One. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. I mean, okay, so we're getting away from the quick fire. But yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy, I'm, I love that we have strong female characters, but I'm also very upset that all the characters around them are still male. But Right. Right. Because right. you have your token woman or like yeah. your token yeah. black person. Yep. And it's, yep. again, what I really appreciate about Harry Potter is that for every Hermione and McGonagall, you have Dolores Umbridge and Bellatrix Lestrange. True. Yep. You have women on the wide array of the spectrum mm-hmm. who are from very different viewpoints, who are doing things with different motivations. And so you get to see a much more richness of of women as characters where in like star wars you have badass women yeah that's Ta-da! true mm-hmm. yeah oh man oh man we could do a whole episode just about this okay i'll, I'll respect <laughs> that i'm not i'm not a huge harry potter i mean i like harry potter well enough it's just you know isn't my thing but i totally sure. agree with what you're saying there so okay back into it how about top or bottom oh god i know it could be bunk beds it could be sex we don't know top or bottom <laughs> top <laughs> all right mountains or ocean Ocean. How about classic or neo-burlesque? Oh, God. Oh, that's so hard. I know. Mm, Classic. Classic. What about peanut butter or jelly? Peanut butter. I'm a huge peanut butter fan. Oh, my gosh. She didn't even hesitate. No no hesitation on that one. All right. No. (laughs) Comedy or tragedy? Mm, Comedy. (laughs) How about Marvel or DC? Marvel. All the way. I mean, I love Wonder Woman, but... Especially with the film portrayals we've had recently out of DC, they are just 
They suck. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree 100%. I, I am looking forward to, I am cautiously looking forward to the Wonder Woman film. I, they're going to screw it over. Probably. Just, but it I, looked good. It, I mean, the, the preview looked good. I don't know. Turn the preview out. looks okay. Yeah. It looks okay. He calls her his secretary. I know. I, I just, know. I can't. I know, I know. I have heard. I will say, I've heard really good things. I have not watched it, but I've heard good things in this in this respect about Supergirl. Have you watched Supergirl? I've heard mixed things about Supergirl. Okay, mixed, fair enough. Um, okay. I mean, she works at like a fashion magazine, yeah. which it's great if we have some women who work at fashion magazines and some women who are auto mechanics. But since most women characters work at fashion magazines or that yeah. sort of job. I just wish there was more diversity. And then I, you know, and then I go like next level on myself and I'm like, well, are you judging people for liking feminine things? Because mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with femininity. So I, I, I feel torn. Oh, I have the same. Like, seriously, we could talk about this forever. I, I want to, but okay. Okay. I, let's, I, I love I, talking I feminism. It's oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. You're coming back on and we're talking fem- feminism sometime. Okay. Yes. It's going to happen. Yay. Okay. Doing it. <laughs> All right. Two more. I've got heels or bare feet. And lastly, most importantly, sleep or sex? Oh, God. It's like asking me to choose a favorite child. I know. It's Uh, Sophie's choice right here on the podcast. God, okay. Well, okay. This this response is only good for today, this moment. (laughs) Okay. Because this changes so much depending on where I'm at with how much I've had with either of them. So right now I would choose sex. All right. Good to know. Whew. I know. Those are some tough ones. Like everybody those thinks like, oh, quick fire. It's going to be easy. No, no, no. I'm going to make you think. <laughs> yeah. That's the hardest question I've been asked so far today. Well, I like it. I'm glad I could. I'm glad I could throw that out there at you. So, all right. Well, we're going to start to wrap up here, but I would love to hear briefly. Um, You mentioned your new online school, and I'm sure that people yes. are really interested in kind of finding out more from you and learning from you. So tell us a little bit about like how to get in touch with you as well as that school and what you've got going on there. Absolutely. So the best way to find me on the internet is to go to sexpositivepsych.com. That is my website. Uh, If you search Sex Positive Psych all over the internet, you will find me. (laughs) So on Twitter, I'm at sexpositive because positive is too long. Uh, On Facebook, it's facebook.com slash sexpositivepsych. And then my new school is through Teachable. So it's sexpositivepsych.teachable.com. I just opened my online school. I'm super excited about it. I have two classes in there right now with more to come. Uh, My first one is called Nasty Non-Negotiation Online. And it is my, one of the classes that is the most popular for me to teach. It has sold out in Portland. I recently did it at the Armory in San Francisco. Had a huge crowd. Um, This class is for you if you're someone who wants to be able to get what you want in the bedroom in a way that is hot and sexy and fun. So Mm. if you want to turn your negotiation into foreplay, Nasty Nandi Negotiation is a great place to start. Ooh, I love that. Yes. It's, It's a lot of fun. So the class, the online class has a bunch of exercises for you to try out with a buddy. And that buddy can be a friend or a lover or a partner Um, the exercises aren't particularly intimate in like a sexual way. So it's accessible for all sorts of people, even if you don't have a partner. Um, if you want to go deeper and developing the way that you talk about sex and understand your sex life, I'm also starting a free, uh, not a free, I'm starting a webinar called Your Erotic Voice. And what we're looking at is how to tune into what turns you on 
find the right words for it and share it with those who need to know. Ooh, that's, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah. So it's, I'm super excited about it. I've already got some signups. It's a six week webinar. It starts uh, February 16th. And once we're done running it as a live webinar, it'll be available through my teachable school as a static course. But if you do it with me live, you get to ask me all your questions and, and let me know what you're struggling with so that we can make sure that you get all the stuff that you need. Very cool. Well, I know I'm personally going to definitely be checking those out. So hopefully maybe we'll get a whole like burlesque strip down crew in there. <laughs> You'll have a whole bunch great. of burlesque performers. Well, if you want, I could send you a special coupon code just for your listeners. That would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'll get that put together and you can put it on the show notes. Very cool. Yeah. So for everybody listening, everything that we're talking about today, we're going to I'm going to have some notes all put up all put together. Obviously, all these links as well as this awesome new coupon code is going to be over at um, the show notes for this episode, which are which is, as always, at burlesquestripdown.com slash Dr. Liz. But we're going to do D-R-L-I-Z. So D-R-L-I-Z is what you're going to find. Um, of course, you can also go to burlesquestripdown.com and then just click the link from the homepage. That also works, too, if you just want to do it that way. So. So, all right. So we've got those links and everything set up. Um, Dr. Liz, this has been amazing. Like I, I think, you know, okay, literally I say this to almost all my guests, but that's just because I have such amazing guests all the time. But I think we could have talked on for hours and hours. Absolutely. <laughs> so you're definitely going to come back on sometime and we have uh, some feminism, some more feminism talk, especially uh, I love this discussion about feminism in the media because that's been on the, on the forefront of my mind lately as well. So we'll have yes. to have a part two at some point. Absolutely. But in the meantime, is there anything else that you kind of want to share with our listeners? We've got a lot of burlesque performers and, as we like to call them, burlesque adjacent, you know, supporters and enthusiasts and things. Anything else you want to share with us today? Keep doing what you're doing. You're a part of the sexy revolution. Woo! Yes! Can we get t-shirts? Sexy revolution t-shirts? Yes. Yes, please. do it. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Liz. We will talk again soon. All right. Thanks. And there you have it, Dr. Liz Powell, everyone. She is just um, a, a great person to know, and I'm very thankful that um, she took the time to, you know, kind of write back to my little fangirl email that I had sent her and that we were able to arrange her to come on the show because um, she's got a lot of really interesting things to share and some of the research to back it up, which is great because, of course, me, I have lots of things to talk about, but I don't have the research to go behind it. So that's always nice to add that in there as well. If you uh, enjoyed hearing from Dr. Liz, of course, she does have a great website with a blog. Um, She does offer individual one-on-one counseling, um, I'm sorry, therapy and coaching. And now this brand new online school, online coursework, um, those two classes that are offered right now at the moment at the beginning of 2017, but I'm sure there will be more added. And she did send me a coupon code, which I will be putting in the show notes for this episode. So it's going to, it's a great coupon. It's 50% off one of the courses and 75 bucks off the other one. So it's great. It's, you definitely want to run over and check that out. Grab this coupon code if you're ready to enroll. So you'll be able to find again, show notes as always, burlesque stripped down dot com slash D-R-L-I-Z. And you can join in the comment section down on that page and kind of join the conversation and let's talk about some of the things that we brought up. Have you ever identified as solo poly and what was that like for you? Or or what do you think about activism? I mean, we got into so many really, really good things. What's your self-care? You know, do you hate baths as much as I do? Because I hate them. <sighs> calm down. Okay, calm down, Velvet. It is okay. So... <laughs> 
Join the conversation um, over there on the website. As always, you can send me a voicemail on the website as well over on the right-hand side of any of those pages. You can click the button that says leave me a message and use your computer or your cell phone to record up to 90 seconds worth of a message, which I often like to play on the air as well. So you're more than welcome to do that. And of course, you can send me an email if that works for you better, uh, velvet at burlesquestripdown.com. And you can reach me there and then I can forward it on to Dr. Liz as well. So we would love to hear from you. We would love to hear what you um, what you think and, and, and what, yeah, what you think, what you think and what you feel. Who are you? Tell me. I want to know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I've had too much caffeine today. Okay. I think that's going to wrap us up today. I do have some more interviews coming up for you in the season of sex that I am extremely excited to share with you. And eventually we may move out of the season of sex. I don't know. What do you think? Do you want me to? Do you want me to move back to burlesque performers? Tell me what you think. I don't know if you don't tell me. <laughs> All right, my friends, lovers, and everybody else who's neither friends nor lovers. That's silly. Why would I say that? All right, my friends and lovers. I will talk to you again very soon. In the meantime, stay warm wherever you are, stay active, stay authentic, and, of course, stay sexy.